we add it to the T-shaped lawyer and the Delta lawyer and bring you the concept of the O-shaped lawyer. Yeah, I won't tell you what shape I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Marlene, I, I just, it hit me today that the last episode of She-Hulk Attorney at Law is next week. And so I'm, I'm just not sure what I'm going to do <laughs> to fill the void once that show is over. <laughs> I know. That's, it's like we, we need to have another Marvel um, rollout before, uh, before the next one comes out it, for the next it, season. Yeah, we'll have to figure out something. So uh, I know that uh, Joshua Lennon and I are going to do at least uh, one recap episode for our Superhuman Law Division podcast with some guests to talk about, you know, how the big law firm worked in a world where there's, you know, super-powered individuals. So the really super-powered individuals. Really super-powered. <laughs> the uh, one thing that I know we're going to talk about is uh, apparently this law firm that She-Hulk works in obviously doesn't have a marketing department. So we're, we're yeah, really going to talk that about that. That was kind of crazy. <laughs> It's like no and no. <laughs> uh, so uh, if the listeners haven't tuned in on that and you want to get really geeky, come join uh, Joshua Lennon and I over at uh, superhumanlaw.com and all six or seven episodes are, are up now. So uh, uh, we're, we're just having fun. Yeah, really go check it out. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So this week we have Adam Curfee on the show uh, to talk about his new book, The Legal Team of the Future, Law Plus Skills. We add it to the T-shaped lawyer and the Delta lawyer and bring you the concept of the O-shaped lawyer. So this builds really well on our episode a few weeks ago with Heidi Gartner on smarter collaboration. This whole idea of moving away from the individual leader and doer in the legal industry and focuses on the value of a team approach. Yeah, it looks like uh, we've kind of uncovered a trend here and uh, mm -hmm. about not just going alone for the lawyers and, and the legal professionals. So I, I like this trend. It takes a team, you know? It does. It <laughs> does. Well, first up, we have Porvi Sangvi from Paul Hastings, as well as one of the board members at the Legal Value Network. And she stopped by at my uh, impromptu uh, recording studio there at LVN Experience Conference to answer our crystal ball question on what she sees from her point of view for the legal industry over the next two say two to five years. So we'll hear from Porvi first, and then we'll jump right into our discussion with Adam Curfee. Hi, I'm Porvi Sungvi. I'm the director of pricing with Paul Hastings, and I'm a founding member of the Legal Value Network. I, uh, it's interesting that you asked that question because I've been asked people if I'm being reminded of what happened in 2008. So with the economic downturn and lawyer demand being down, what am I seeing? Am I seeing the same kinds of requests? And what's interesting is that, you know, there's some tone of the same kinds of questions, but there's so many more people on legal operations on both sides, in the law firm side and on the client side now, that what I foresee is more collaboration. And I, I see easier conversations. I see more value-added responses rather than reactionary habits that had happened in the past. So I'm hoping that, you know, economic cycles will always go around, ups and downs, and how we weather through them. This, this time around, I think it's going to be a lot more a lot productive, a lot better for everybody in the game. What would you think would be 
the worst reaction for an economic downturn from a law firm and from a client side versus maybe a better approach this time around than what happened, say, 12, 15 years ago? I think a worse reaction could be just slashing prices without having a conversation around what the pain points are. I think a worse reaction would be having a conversation about uh, something as nuanced as one bill or one price rather than talking about the entire engagement or the scope of what's being worked on. Horvey, thank you very much. You're welcome. We'd like to welcome Adam Curphy, Senior Manager of Innovation at Mayor Brown and my good colleague. Welcome, Adam, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Adam, you've had a varied career as an associate, as an educator, as an innovation business professional, among many, many other things, I, I am sure. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to writing this book, The Legal Team of the Future, Law Plus Skills? Yeah, sure. This really started when I was teaching and I was just teaching business law and law firms started to come to us and say, hey, what's this innovation thing? What can we do with technology? How do we get new skills? And I sat there and went, I don't know, but I can find out and started meeting with various innovation teams from various different firms across the board and found out that what they were looking for was much wider than the real focus on technology that a lot of the new legal innovation courses were coming up with. And so I devised a course there and started building that. And then I joined a group called the O-Shaped Lawyer, which was started by a group of GCs. So we started to hear from the in-house voice that they were looking for human skills. And that group of skills became much more multifaceted than I think we were seeing a lot of in terms of innovation and the future of law. And then I got back into practice and started to see more and more about how it persisted and all these different skills that people wanted. And as part of my other activities, I was an external consultant at King's College London, so looking at their innovation courses. And my publisher approached them and said, we are looking to break into legal publishing. We've done business publishing. Do you have anybody who think you could recommend for writing a book? And they said, well, this guy never shuts up. So uh, maybe he's got something. <laughs> so I realized that from all of the experiences I'd had and pulling all of this together, that I did. And, and there was a model there pulled together various bits that were out there and could give a different way to really looking at the future of law and, and how it can be done. Because I'd seen so much about the lawyer of the future and I just think that that title is so unfair on so many people. So this is really on the legal team of the future and bringing together all those multidisciplinary professionals. Yes, exactly. Because your Law Plus model really has something in it for everyone, doesn't it? Can you explain how people in different professions can use the model? Sure. Yeah. So it, re it really is for everyone and it pulls together lots of different models under the various parts of it. So it is for lawyers to see how they can adopt new skills and where they might like to focus their skills in addition to legal knowledge. But it's also for those business professionals, allied professionals and others of us working in the legal profession. So in terms of the model, it can give you an outline of the current status of legal practice. So you can see a bit about the book talks about 
why do we need this? Why are we doing all of this? So that can give you that sort of background. And the model itself can give you suggestions where there might be gaps of where you can fill, how you can add value, what the lawyers are doing, and where it is that you can really bring in your skills usefully to work with them. And I try and introduce case studies and um, there is a whole chapter dedicated to a single simulated case study, which is based on a real world scenario, which is how different professions can work with the lawyers to really deliver a better level of client service. So this is all about being a bridge and working with specialists. And as much as we often say, lawyers, you have to be that bridge and you have to have that legal knowledge and also IT skills and process skills and change skills and human skills. I think there is something in the business professionals being able to look at it and say, well, I understand these bits of the law and I can be that bridge too. And I know the right questions to ask you and I know the right responses to give. So it's really designed to give this overview of how we might categorize the various skill sets that we've got. And so it can help to build teams. And that can be with hiring people. It can be with creating a team for a pitch. It can be, how am I going to work with the lawyers in this firm? So it is a bit for everyone. So you introduced the concept of, of an O-shaped lawyer. And we've talked on this show, and there's lots of talk in the industry, about the different shapes of lawyers now. There's the, the T-shaped lawyer that Amani Smathers had created. There's the, the Delta lawyer, which built upon that from Amani from Cat Moon and Allison Carroll. And now the, the O-shaped lawyer seems to build upon these two other concepts as well. Can you give us kind of a, an overview of what is behind the O-shaped principle? Sure. And I, I will say that the O-shaped lawyer is not mine by any stretch. It is another um, model that I've introduced, just like um, Allison and Kat's model. And I was lucky enough to speak with Allison and Kat before the book was published to get their um, permission to include the various parts of the Delta competency model. But the O-shaped lawyer really speaks to the human part. If we're looking back at the Delta model, it's the people bit of it. And this started with a guy called Dan Kane, who at the time was GC of Network Rail. And he was thinking about taking in lawyers from private practice and how you had to almost deprivatize their skill sets to turn them into in-house lawyers. And in doing so, realized that actually he wanted to see the same skills from his providers, from his legal advisors, those human skills, communication, collaboration, all those sorts of things. And that led to the O, which has five different O words of openness, ownership, optimism, originality, and opportunism. And that's what he wanted his legal advisors to have. So he went out and partnered with various people. And at the time, one of them was me. I was, I was teaching at uh, law school at the time and was able to talk to him about, certainly in the UK, the changing paths to legal qualification and how it was an ideal time to look at new skills. And he did a survey with various GCs from a group of different companies looking at what they wanted. Was this right? Were these O's that he created correct? And what really came out were kind of 12 attributes that clients are looking for based around adaptability, relationships, and value creation. And that model is now expanding to the US. He's about to start doing the same survey 
um, in the US to build it in the same way. And I've been lucky enough to be involved in the, as I said, right from the start and coming together with competency models for them. And I've drawn on that in the book for the human shaped skills, because I don't want to replace any of the good work that's been done here. And so a lot of those O-shaped skills are the skills that you'll see in the law plus people element of, of the law plus model. Adam, you note that the current model of lawyering puts too much pressure on the individual and that legal teams of diverse groups with, with different talents are the future, which sounds right, but for some, this might be seen as a law firm not being a law firm anymore in terms of how we've seen it historically. You know, accomplished individuals who have run things are essentially asked to share leadership, I guess, in, in some areas with others, you know, even though practitioners are the ones who really take most of the risks involved in representation. So how do you change that mindset or encourage leaders to sort of think about how this should look in the future? Yeah, sure. I mean, that pressure on the individual is is something that I've just watched happen more and more. So, That's real. <laughs> yeah. When I was teaching, it was it was, you know, when we started, even in the time that I was there, it was it was just the law you needed to know. And then it was law and business. And and then it was, well, oh, now you need to know law and technology. And then it was, well, actually you need human skills. So now it's law and the and we kept piling up these things. And I used to have this slide of like this book and keep on piling up of somebody just getting weighed under. And in an industry that's already got mental health issues, I don't think that it's fantastic for us to be, you are responsible solely. And I had so many students at the time saying, I feel like there's so much. I not only have to know the law and this very complex area and thing that I'm doing, but I'm also expected to be able to code and to do this and to do all these different things. So that's really kind of part of why I think it does put too much pressure on. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that law firms are businesses, even if we don't always learn that at law school. Um, but law firms are businesses that serve clients. And although we might like to divorce our legal advice from the reality of commercial decision making, it's just not the way the market is going. It's not what clients want. We've seen GCs are being asked to be more and more of a part of the business to give strategic advice, not just legal advice and to be a quasi separate entity that just sits there waiting for something to go wrong. We've seen clients increasingly wanting their advice within the context of their business, whether that's through asking in the relationship or we've seen tenders and pitches that say, well, actually, we don't just want you to change the law. We also think our process for doing this isn't fantastic. So we want your firm to fix that as well. Who have you got and what have you got that can do that? And we can't keep on saying to the lawyers, yeah, you can do all of it because it's just not fair. And they're not going to be able to focus on the very technical, very good legal skills that they have to do that. And this trend of deregulation is already happening. People are already sharing leadership. There's new entrants on the market, particularly in my market in uh, England and Wales, where you've got new entrants in the market who are increasing competition. So law firms in particular, if they don't take stock and start looking at what structure might work for them, they're going to find the world runs away from them, whether they want it or not. I think that history has changed and we need to accept that. And if we want to continue to serve our clients and be the first point of call and that trusted advisor, then we need to change the way we do things. Uh, Adam, you had mentioned earlier that you did some case studies in the book. And one of those case studies talks about a latticed pathway for professional progression. Uh, can you tell us a little more about this uh, particular case study and, and how it worked? 
So this is one of those weird situations where it's a very small world full of coincidences. So this case study came from Nigel Spencer, who's who's currently at, at Queen Mary University, um, but worked at Reed Smith just before I'd worked at Reed Smith in the L&D department. So we actually missed each other, but got to know each other separately. And this case study uh, was something that he was engaged in when he was at the Oxford Said Business School conducting research with Meridian West. So they were looking at how to establish the firm of the future. And they essentially found through their research that the career ladder is increasingly no longer a ladder. There are new routes opening up. And as firms evolve, promotion becomes this latticed pathway where we might jump in and out of several teams during our careers, um, you know, from legal education to lawyer to innovation. Um, you know, this, this is one of those lattice pathways that I've taken, but there's plenty of people who I know and who I've worked with who have started off as lawyers and moved into technology and then moved back or have come from other areas to move into law. And we are increasingly seeing within law firms more and more paths to promotion. And I propose a similar structure in the book, looking at splinter points, which are those times of real attrition for law firms, which could be ideal points at which to introduce new training tracks for individuals to add new disciplines to their skill set. So trying to formalize some of that. But it's something that really resonated with me when I heard it, that we're no longer junior associate, senior associate, partner, and that's the only way to go. And I think that's the right way that we should grow. One of your suggestions is that lifelong learning should not just be the initiative of the individual, but also firms. And they should be coordinating that initiative to support their employees and, and bridge gaps. So how do you think they should go about this? Yeah. So if we if we want law firms to really have a group of multidisciplinary professionals that between them can fulfill all the needs of the business, then you have to go about it in a slightly more coordinated way than it's on you. You do what you like, go out there and search. Here's all this stuff, you know, go pick what you want. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Where could you possibly start? Just go and learn everything. And I'm fully aware there is a lot going on with firms already and with L and D teams. And, and I think this really starts with, grassroots. There are a handful of firms who are introducing new joiners to more rounded looks at how law firms work and skill sets. You know, even within our uh, our own firm at Mayor Brown, the apprenticeship in England and Wales involves working for business services teams. Reed Smith doing things where they have people in working for business services teams before they join. So there are things going on with looking at that wider group of skill sets that might give people the impetus to particularly pick a route. Um, But also it means working with legal education providers to have a competency framework that you want to meet that can be handed over and continue to build. And I talk a lot in the book about portfolios and building up portfolios of work of being able to say, these are the skills that I've pursued. This is where I excel. This is where I want to carry on going, which can be useful not only for the whole CLA and CPD type stuff, but also to make sure that we have a path. And part of the reason for splitting this up into a model was to say to people, look, there are four different areas which have 
two different parts to them that you can go down. You can go down law plus people skills and work your way through that. You can look at law plus business, law plus change, law plus technology, and you can start to specialize in those areas. So I think having a path for people is a real big part of it, which tracks for legal engineers, legal technologists. Now that might mean partnering with external providers like the LinkedIn learnings of this world, but I think one thing that firms really need to remember is that you can put all this stuff here, but if you don't tie it to anything in terms of incentive or progression, nobody's going to do it. And they're just carry, going to carry on doing the things they've always done. So there has to be an incentive. What type of incentives do you, do you think would work? So talk about a huge range of um, incentives in the book. I mean, it comes back to, I think, the one that we'd all like, which is more money for um, various different <laughs> roles and accepting that business services professionals currently earn a lot less than uh, lawyers do. But also it's things like being able to give hours. If we're going to accept that hours is the measure of success, then, and that's what we're going to go with, and for good or ill, the billable hour is here, then we need to widen what's included in that time. What do those hours represent? We need to give people the chance to say, yes, working on stuff that is going to fundamentally change the way you work, but isn't instantly going to deliver money right now, that is worthy of your time. And it should be counted towards when we're looking at your bonuses, when we're looking at your hours targets, that sort of stuff. If we don't let ourselves do R&D, and there's a stat in the book that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it talks about how law firms don't do anywhere near as much research and development as any other industry. That If we don't do that, then we're never going to change. And other businesses who can now provide legal advice are going to come along and say, we've done that R&D and we started working on this five years ago and realized that everything's changed. So we need to give that incentivization. I also talk about, you know, spin-offs and incubators and creating that culture of innovation. So giving people the opportunity to have seats and secondments and peek into another way of working or partnering with others. Or do you get the kudos for bringing in new technologies? Do you get profit sharing? You know, there are all sorts of things that can go on around incentivization. And and if it sounds like I've thrown the kitchen sink at this, I almost slightly have because one of the things that I really recognize in the book is that every firm, every educational establishment, every in-house team is different. So if I can provide a number of different routes for how to get there, you can pick the one that most resonates and most works for your organization. Yeah. And I think all that ties into the fact that we're dealing with professionals, both the lawyers and the allied professionals who tend to be looking to avoid risk. That's how we're trained. We're, we're, trained as issue spotters on everything that can go wrong. So I like the idea of having those incentives and then probably having to adjust those incentives based on the needs of the people that you're wanting to to change behaviors in. So yep. it's good to have multiple uh, ways to, to attack that problem. Many carrots. Well, one of the things and another issue I think is that a lot of times lawyers are – wanting to 
advise clients. They're, they're wanting to kind of take the lead and say, here's what you need to do when a lot of times the clients are really wanting them to know more about their business. And so you talk about the importance of listening on the job. And you even point out that some firms have set up what they call client listening initiatives. Can you explain what those are and uh, and how one would set one up? So we are often guilty as a profession of not listening. And maybe it's this need to be the smartest in the room. I don't know. Um, you know, we often talk first and we want to be the one that seemed to be talking and giving that advice. Um, I'm certainly guilty of it. I have to stop myself uh, all the time. Just be like, no, you have to listen and hear other people. But these client listening initiatives are generally objective groups. So they might involve, and they usually involve a BD team because they'll, they can help to target who uh, you should speak to. So you've got business development and either perhaps an external organization, and there are external organizations that can help with client feedback or former partners or essentially somebody who's not directly involved in the client relationship and the current matters tend to be the makeup of these teams. And what they do is they go and they meet with the client at whatever intervals they may decide and they interview the clients about the relationship, generally to get qualitative data to let the client talk rather than saying, oh, how good were we on a scale of one to seven? It's just that, how are we doing? How can we help? What do you need from us? And then you can get all of that data and start looking at it and say, where are the opportunities? Not only with this client, but across the board, what are we hearing? Where can we improve? And one of the things the O-shaped lawyer did in the early days was set up a number of pilots with law firms, specific law firms and clients to work together to do that very sort of pulse survey, how are things going feedback loop. So they identified a particular area of their relationship they wanted to fix or work on. I won't say fix because that implies it was broken, uh, but it'd be communication, for example. And over the course of a set amount of time or one single matter, both the client and the law firm would say how they thought they were doing at communication. And there would be a facilitator from the O-shape group. So again, an objective third party that's consistent to all of these things who looked at that and said, well, I noticed, you know, something's dipping here. Something's not going very well. We need to talk about this or you need to meet or maybe we need a training session or maybe you just need to pick up the phone to your client. But those client listening things, I think, start with business development. They start with identifying which of those clients are most important to you. It's them finding the right third party to work with. And I think they're so useful because they provide honest feedback, which we're sometimes quite scared to receive as lawyers. It's, it, it's often fraught with peril to speak to a client. And we have to go through a lot of trust as business professionals and allied professionals to be allowed to be put in front of clients. And that's understandable because the way in which people are incentivized is how many clients did you bring in as a partner? What's your book of business? So I totally get that. But the more we can listen, actually, the better that relationship can be. And yeah, that does mean you might have to share your client a little bit with BD and um, and this whoever the third party is. But those things, once they're set up, can really help you identify how not only you can just sit there and give advice when it's needed, 
but you can proactively be looking for things you can do to improve that relationship, get more work in the future. Um, and if you do it for others, they might do it for you, which can increase cross-selling, which is great because they're all good business reasons behind these things, right? So I'm going to shift to to a practical question. You know, when you're looking at a process or technology to see if there's a better approach, you've suggested using the scamper principle. Can you tell us what that is and how it works? Yeah, sure. It's it's funny that you focused on that because scamper was actually a last minute addition that I really like scamper as a framework and I undernard about whether to include it because there were a lot of toolkits in there. And I thought, actually, do you know what? The more information I can give somebody, the better. And this is, it's one that resonated with me before I even knew what Scamper was. And it's really a guideline to help you coming up with new ideas. We don't often have time to sit down and have ideas, especially you know when you're on the billable hour and you're looking at targets and you're trying to think. There's that famous... Um, picture of the uh, the cave people pushing a cart with square wheels and somebody's offering them a circular one and they're saying, I don't have time to replace the wheels. Um, we, we often find ourselves in that position. So Scamper is just a little bit of a framework to help people come up with ideas. So each of those, you know, there's, there's substitutes is the S, which is kind of replacing part of an existing process or service. So the way in which you give your information to a client, do you give it in a 60-page Word document? Could you maybe give it in something that's a bit more in line with their business, contextually uh, aligned to what they want to see? A dashboard, a uh, couple of slides, because that's what they have to give back to the CEO. You know, Can you replace part of what you currently do? Uh, you can combine, which is the C, which is taking two things that have been separate and stick them together. We're seeing some of that with uh, relativity at the moment and saying, hey, we've been doing e-discovery. Why don't we do uh, transaction-based discovery as well and do the due diligence piece and the AI around that because the two tools are pretty similar. And if we can combine them into one, would that work? Could you combine you know, a client dashboard with a client calendar? It's like cell phones that are phones and cameras. You've put them together. And you've got adapt or add, which is the A, which is evolving or adding extra features to an existing solution. So adding on all these new things and trying to think about Am I providing enough? Could I give an extra bit of capability for my client? You can modify, which is changing one thing. So it might be changing the design, how to access it, the speed, who the target group is. The example I always go back to on this one, which I really like, is that um, what about jungle gyms, but for adults? And, you know, you're changing the user. And that's only because I want jungle gyms for adults. That I'll keep on talking about that one. Um, you've got... <laughs> You've got the P, which is put to another use. So that, you know, there was a acronym that we used in education, which I would never think of using in law, but it was CASE, which is copy and steal everything. Um, <laughs> because in education, if you see something you like, do it. Um, in much the same way, can you take another solution and apply it to law? You know, a lot of the technologies that we use and we see, and a lot of the things that we do and the way in which we do them in our personal lives is nowhere near like how we do them um, when we're practicing law or when we're in the law firm. So can we borrow from elsewhere and think about what else we could be doing? E is the, the eliminate, get bits of, rid of bits of the existing process. Often you find people who are far too senior are doing work that they shouldn't be, or you're going through more jurisdictions and more people. I remember one of the examples, which I think is in the book, we talked about, we sat down with a business services team at 
a firm and ask them to take us through what that process was. And once they'd seen it all written down, they kind of said, is that what we do to, to go through this process every day? Seeing it written down is very different. And it turned out they actually went and asked another team for access to a technology. And then that team got it and got the information from that tech and gave it back to them. It turned out that team didn't want to be doing that either. And everybody wanted actually the original people who were requesting it to just have straight access to the tech, but nobody had ever joined the dots. And then we did, and that cut out a huge bit of the process. And then the last one is just to reverse or rearrange. And the famous example I like using from this one is just a very simple process of fixing a church roof, which is, you know, roof is broken. So you raise the money, you put up the scaffolding, you fix the roof. But a church in the US didn't do that. Church in the US said, well, hold on, what if we put up the scaffolding first before we raise any money? So they put up the scaffolding and then they sold the space for advertising. And that's how they raised the money, which then they could fix the roof. So even just that three-step process, flipping things around and thinking about them differently can help it be a much easier process to go through. And quite often, document automation is the easy one to consider here. It's very easy to say, ask the questions as they come up in the document. But actually, that might not be the right way to ask the questions to get the best information. So it's just thinking about things differently. But that's why I like Scamper. It's a quick and easy way to go to, to go, huh, do I have an idea about this? Can I add something? Can I take something away? Can I combine with someone else, somewhere else? Well, we, we have uh, unwittingly uh, followed that example by uh, restructuring how we ask some of these questions that we had for you today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump now over to the, our crystal ball question. And so, Adam, sure. we ask all of our guests the crystal ball question, which is what do you see in the next three to five years in terms of legal innovation. And, and I'm pretty sure you have some, some pretty good thoughts on this. Look, from, from a people side of things, I think we're going to see more varied professions and tracks to promotion. We'll see much more of these hybrid routes and not only at the grassroots level, but as we work our way through the promotion levels as well, I think we'll see more shared ownership and alternative business services entering into the legal profession. And the deregulation will continue on its path of going through various parts of the world. And I think we'll see more of a marrying between business advice and legal advice. You know, that is something that in-house teams are already being pulled down into saying, well, you need to prove yourself. You're not, you know, how are you not a cost center? What are you doing for us? Where are you strategically involved? We don't just want to know what we can do. We want to know what we should do. So I think they are going to have to be dragged in and that's going to pull the law firms in saying, well, no, I don't just want 60 pages and a legal opinion that says, yeah, it could be any of these routes, but you know, don't take us on any of these. It's, it's up to you, which you go with. They want strategic advice. And to do that, we're going to have to round out the teams that we're providing. So I really think the future of law is much more multidisciplinary. It's accepting that we have to get professionals from other areas and industries and working with them and being able to provide that level of client service. Um, from a technology point of view, I'm still really excited about what we can achieve with data. You know, now that the honeymoon period of AI as a futuristic cure-all has passed and everybody's kind of going, okay, it can't do everything and we're getting down to the reality of what it can do, we can start to concentrate on saying, okay, that's really exciting. But first, should we, you know, collect, structure, 
clean data and work with data specialists. And I think that's going to identify new areas that legal advisors can help. I think it's going to show us new ways that we can deliver that advice. I think it's just going to change quite a lot the more we learn and the more I see data being applied to various different elements of the legal profession, the more excited I am about how we're going to use it and how we're going to do things differently. So when is the book going to be released? So the book uh, was released on the 22nd of September. So it came out and it's available on Amazon and uh, anywhere else where you get your books. It should be. Well, Adam, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for an excellent interview and for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Adam. And thank you so much for having me. So I'm really happy that we had the opportunity to have Adam on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I did read the book and I think it's very comprehensive and he lays things out, you know, very clearly for the reader to process and to also take advantage of and use. It's a lot to unpack, but I, I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to talk to him. I like how he also brings in the allied professionals on this because we were talking kind of after the after the interview on the focus on attorneys. And I mean, he's right. We already layer so much on attorneys and we have people that are supposed to be doing a lot of, you know, the human side of this. And who want to and want to be more involved. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, let people do what they're really good at doing and not try to, to load everything on, on the shoulders of individuals that need to be focused on other things. I guess at the same time, we're still looking for that holistic approach to things, but it doesn't mean everyone needs to take on everything. A couple of points. Like I think about this as, as you know, first of all, we're talking about attorney unicorns, like, okay, you have to have all of these skills and you have to be fantastic at all of them. And we have to find all the attorney unicorns, <laughs> you know, and, and we yeah. know, and we know just from trying to find unicorns in our own space that it's like, you know, there aren't unicorns. And, right. and the other thing I was thinking, uh, you know, hear me out on this is that you're, you're mentioning, yes, you know, we still want to have lawyers with these skills, but it's kind of like, if you think of a librarian, like, okay, you have a broad range of knowledge in, in a lot of areas, you know, but you're not necessarily the subject matter expert. I'm thinking of like research librarians, you know, you're right. not necessarily the subject matter expert, but you know enough about everything to be able to sort of function in that space to, to a certain extent until you get the expert in. So, I mean, maybe we look at it something like that, you know, you should have a level of these skills, but you know, you don't have to be the expert in all of them. Yeah, I agree. And I haven't had a chance to dive deep into Adam's book yet, but I like a number of the case studies yes. that, that I've seen from that mm -hmm. and, and having that practical experience or practical uh, examples that are out there. So I'm excited to dive deeper in, into the book. Yeah, yeah, I think you'll like it. So thanks again to Adam Curfee for joining us today. Uh, the book it came out on September 22nd, and we'll have a link to order that on the show notes. Yeah, please order the books. And thanks to all of you, audience, for taking the time to listen to the Geek & Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Uh -oh. 
And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David Sicka. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk to you later. All right, ciao for now.